0: Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Thanks for joining here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. It is Thursday, February 22nd. We learn more about a legal challenge from a Hilo attorney against HMSA in the way it approves and reimburses care. Could a recent ruling force a company to change the way it does business with doctors and patients? We talk about the concerns about the cost of Maui's recovery from the wildfires. How could government services across the state be impacted And a new facility to help homeless youth opens with additional beds on the leeward side of Oahu. Plus, we learn about a little-known chapter of Hawaii's history as we mark Black History Month. A group of African-American soldiers were tasked to build a historic Big Island Trail. You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This month, the circuit court judge issued a ruling that many in the healthcare industry are watching closely. It went against Hawaii's largest health insurance company, HMSA. The Big Island attorney who took on the case against the insurer hopes this could be a game changer when it comes to the contracts between the carrier and doctors and patients. Ted Hong says he took several years to carefully craft the lawsuit and was grateful the court issued a decision that went in his favor. Judge Robert Kim wrote, the HMSA agreements wrongfully infringe on the practice of medicine between the physician and patient and called them unconscionable and unforceable. Here's Ted Hong.
1: This case is about who makes the decisions regarding your health care. Should it be your doctor and you, or should it be some clerk buried, you know, in some cubicle within HMSA's building on Keomoku Street? And that's what this case is about. We have always contended that those decisions in terms of your health care, what you should be doing, what should be prescribed to you, should be primarily dictated by your physician.
0: And so tell us about your client and, and this case in particular.
1: Dr. Nita is a long time uh, OBGYN. He has taken it upon himself to care for a lot of the people who wouldn't have normally access to healthcare or certainly quality healthcare. So he does a lot of people um, taking on people that other physicians and certainly um, even the hospital won't take and doing that has come at a significant cost to him in terms of his practice. and. All he wants to do is because he sees how this impacts the medical profession. You have people who go through medical school who really don't want to practice medicine here in the state of Hawaii because HMSA is so dominant in the market that it controls the reimbursement to the physicians. You have a, a pronounced doctor shortage here on the neighbor islands, um, especially in certain fields like OBGYN. You have a lot of doctors retiring because, again, the paperwork and the and, and the process that HMSA has over with respect to paying the physicians is incredible. And so, you know, Dr. Nita is taking it upon himself to really challenge HMSA in different forms in terms of their business practices.
0: And then you also represented another client who was supposed to get an MRI, but HMSA wouldn't approve it initially?
1: Right. So this is very common in terms of, we represent actually over 30 people in this case who have gone to Dr. Nita or other doctors. And in terms of Scotty Norton, what happened was he was experiencing severe back pain and other issues, went to his doctor. His doctor said, hey, we better do a MRI to kind of check this out because he he was concerned about cancer. And he submitted to HMSA and HMSA denied it. HMSA thought physical therapy would have been more appropriate. Scotty was in a lot of pain, and going to physical therapy was excruciating. There's one point in time that he couldn't even get out of the car to go to physical therapy. It was so bad, even the physical therapist told him, hey, you got to get an MRI. HMSA finally relented. They did an MRI. They found out that cancer was spread throughout his entire body, gave him months to live, and then he passed. Recently before, around Thanksgiving, uh, well, we agreed to take his deposition to preserve his testimony. He passed shortly, within days after the deposition. But this is an example of how HMSA denies things, and it turns out to be, you know, if they had listened to Gotty Norton's physician, who knows him best, it could have been diagnosed earlier, and treatment could have been initiated a lot earlier. Maybe it could have saved his license certainly would have prolonged his life. But, you know, physical therapy does very little for cancer and somebody should have known that.
0: Well, that said that, you know, he passed before you got this, this ruling in your favor.
1: Yes, he, he did. He passed before we got the order from the court saying that these contracts are unconscionable. And what that points out is that HMSA's decisions with respect to denying coverage has a tangible impact on people's lives and their families.
0: And so talk about what makes this lawsuit, this legal challenge different maybe from other suits that might've come up against HMSA.
1: You know, it's a great question because if you look at the uh, cases, the reported opinions regarding HMSA, generally HMSA grinds their opponents into dust. In this case, we did a lot of research and we said that the contract that you sign when you initially go see your doctor, where it says that, oh, if there's any difference between what insurance reimburses and the actual cost, you're going to reimburse the doctor personally. We said, and our theory is, that is a valid binding contract. But HMSA, in their contracts, with the between HMSA and the physicians, they actually say that any of those contracts, any of those agreements are invalid, that you can't go after the patient for the difference with respect to the cost of a procedure or medication or anything else, a test. So that difference, we think, is critical in this particular case because we feel we have a valid binding contract between the physician and the patient and that HMSA is interfering with that contract.
0: So you think then this ruling in your favor could be groundbreaking uh, and affect patients across the state?
1: We're hoping that because, again, our goal was to reset the status. We reset the current nature of medical care in the state of Hawaii. I mean, that's our goal. At the very least, we want to make sure that these contracts, the HMSA contracts, are reset to make it at least more tenable to the individual physicians. So you have a lot of physicians working for hospitals or clinics or other big organizations. God bless them. The problem we're having is with the the small guys, the individual doctors who want to open their individual practice. Those are the people, whether it's, you know, OBGYNs, whether it's psychiatrists or therapists, all those people, they're struggling. And it it is just amazing to me to to talk to them about what's happening to them. They're literally being run out of the business because of HMSA's business practice.
0: So you believe if you can reset this system that maybe then that will remove some of the barriers to keeping doctors or enticing new doctors to set up practice maybe in rural areas?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely, that's what we're hoping. More than legislation, more than political campaign promises, you know, we feel that at the contract level, at this ground level between physicians, patients, and uh, insurers, we have the opportunity to at least reset that or start that conversation.
0: HMSA, Is opting to appeal this any response to that
1: hmsa has to appeal it because they can't let some hick who's practicing law out in Hilo get the better of them i mean they own they own a uh, practically a whole block in honolulu you should see their financial holdings they can't they can't let the dave you know david uh bring down goliath with a little piece of gravel it's just unheard of. So you're ready for the fight? I wouldn't have taken this case if I wasn't ready for the fight. And I know this is going to be a long, drawn-out fight. And from my perspective and Dr. Nita's perspective, from you know, Scotty Norton's family's perspective, from the other 30-some-odd plaintiffs that we have involved in our lawsuit, bring it on.
0: That was Hilo attorney Ted Hong. In a, re- a written statement, HMSA said it disagrees with the court's decision and has appealed it. The order was not a decision on the merits of any party's claim and is limited to the specific individuals and unique facts in the lawsuit, and therefore it does not impact other HMSA provider or member agreements, end quote. <laughs>
2: Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm David Shapiro. I'm Richard Leiter. We're co-authors of Who Do You Want to Be When You Grow Old? Next time on New Dimensions, we'll be talking about The Path of
3: Purposeful Aging. Sunday morning at 11.
2: Support for HPR comes from Blue Note Hawaii. South African singer-songwriter and guitarist Jonathan Butler performs songs such as Going Home and Sarah, Sarah in two sets nightly, February 29th and March 1st. Tickets at bluenotehawaii.com. This weekend, HPR presents the Makaha Suns, The first two shows are sold out, so we're adding a third show this Saturday at 2 p.m. For tickets and more information, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets.
0: State lawmakers knew going into session that Maui's recovery uh, was a high priority following the devastating wildfires of six months ago. But the reality of cash flow and federal reimbursements is something that the legislature is grappling with. Some departments have uh, been cautioned that there could be anywhere from a half a billion to a billion dollar shortfall to deal with. HPR reporter Kuve Hirishi joins
4: us uh, to talk about this. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, lawmakers spent the week trying to wrap their heads around the true cost of the Maui wildfire recovery and rebuilding efforts. And then the state's. Obligations in particular. The Senate Ways and Means Committee met yesterday to discuss the emergency appropriation bill. HPR reporter, uh, government and politics reporter Ashley Mizua was there to hear State Attorney General Ann Lopez asking legislators for $65 million in emergency appropriations, and this would go to fund the state's contribution to the One Ohana Initiative. This is part of that $175 million settlement program for families of the 101 victims who died in the Lahaina fire. Uh, They could receive up to $1.5 million in compensation. Lopez explained to senators that they received guidance from a New York attorney that specializes in litigation after mass casualty events to reach that number 1.5 million dollar settlement for the families of deceased line of fire victims.
5: If we were to litigate uh, each of the deceased, we would be arguing over well, how old was the person and how much money did they make and how much longer were they going to live and these kinds of things. So from his experience, I I think he helped everybody come to that conclusion of what of the 1.5 and how much should be in the fund. Um, So that Really didn't have any conversation about who's liable and for how much. We just all know we're getting sued, and it's going to cost
4: us money. So, you know, Senators question why the state should put money into a settlement fund if it was not liable for the deaths or injuries. Lopez says, you know, we all know these lawsuits are going to proceed. It's just a fact of life. What uh, she's trying to do is reduce litigation and and future expense. But that $65 million is just one part of the state's financial obligations to the Maui wildfire and recovery efforts. Here's uh, State Budget Director Luis Salavaria.
3: Overall, Senators, really as we are through uh, February 19th, uh, total obligations so far and expenditures have reached $2.1 billion, quite significant, of which the state's portion right now, because of issues on how things are determined, and this number is constantly in flex, the state is currently obligated at about $561 million. The major disaster fund right now is short approximately 361 million dollars for fiscal year 24. And so what we are looking at right now, you know, departments are starting to basically look at what we have existing, what more we can infuse from existing appropriations, but in all likelihood, uh chair, we will be coming in and requesting an additional appropriation for a fiscal year 24.
4: Some of uh you know, these costs are being fronted as you mentioned by the state with federal government uh, reimbursements coming later. Soliverio says three to five years, maybe longer. And mm-hmm. so, having to put that money up front is uh, sort of uh, the the pain point there. And that's just to cover costs through June of this year. Uh, what's really worrying lawmakers is what happens after the federal management. Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, uh, is set to leave next February. Will there be enough housing in place by then, right? Because more than 3,500 households were displaced by the Maui wildfires. Uh, 1,100 of those have been able to secure interim housing through the uh, FEMA program, but for another 800 or so residents who aren't eligible for FEMA, That cost of housing and wraparound services, which includes meals, is costing the state about $1,000 per person per day. And so when we look forward to that, you know, if residents aren't rehoused, these residents aren't rehoused by the time FEMA leaves, the state may need to pay ongoing shelter costs uh, in these hotels or wherever they they figure out of more than a million dollars a day. Uh, which is currently not in the state budget. Uh, Senate Ways and Means uh, Committee Chair Donovan Dela Cruz is concerned. There's not enough clarity over who is responsible for what when it comes to this uh, housing plan and how we're going to rehouse uh, Lahaina displaced residents. Uh, here's Dela Cruz.
3: Because you have the sheltering task force. You have the housing task force. You have you got all kinds of things going on. And so how do we make sure that they're all coordinated can't just be in silos because that's part kind of our issue. Once we have that, then the departments can start to look at how they f- fit into the plan, and then that way BNF can start to look. Okay, well, how much is this plan now that we have it? And then hopefully we can get nonprofits to say, okay, this is where we can fit in in the county. We got to we got to get that soon though, especially if we're paying what is it 500, 500 million total? I mean, the, for this effort. So there's obviously resources for this plan, but then we don't we don't have a document yet.
4: Yeah. So, the governor's joint housing task force uh, was there and they plan to reconvene to really tighten up a lot, uh, tighten up that housing plan uh, for a follow up briefing with uh, the Ways and Means Committee before they move forward on this emergency appropriation. A lot of that is riding on Governor Josh Green's visit to D.C. this week. Uh, Governor uh, Green is traveling to Washington, D.C., where he will meet with officials from the Federal Emergency Management Agency to really ask for uh, a among other things, a potential extension on that February 2025 um, date for pullout of FEMA. And that's something that uh, multiple testifiers have said. It, it happens. It's happened in the past. FEMA can extend, but there's nothing on paper. And for the Ways and Means Committee, they want uh, those things tightened up. Another ask uh, will be for more help in uh, from FEMA in building those interim housing uh, projects right help us build uh, I think the ask was for a thousand units for FEMA to come in with a thousand units the county is working there's some private housing coming up a uh, DHS uh, State Department of Human Services is also pulling together some housing and they want FEMA to do a thousand units F- FEMA is pushing back they've committed to 200 Hopefully, the governor will uh, get some momentum there. But a lot of the information that will come out of that meeting in D.C. will go into the joint uh, house uh, joint housing task force plan that uh, hopefully senators can have a better look at. Yeah, I mean,
0: the work ahead is just staggering. It really is staggering. I mean, everybody is just working very hard to try and pull it together. Uh, and, and we're worried about the costs. I mean, if departments have to, you know, plan for a, For cuts of 10-15%, you know, we understand that 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 is a reality, you know, hopefully that doesn't happen, but um, you just can't be assured Mm. that we're not going to get the full amount.
4: Exactly, and, and Maui County Mayor uh, Richard Bisson also coming into the Ways and Means Committee, asking for four hundred, uh, a little over four hundred million dollars for interim housing infrastructure emergency needs. They're seeing a drop in revenue with this move of short-term vacation rentals and TAT taxes, so they're looking at a reduction in services on Maui, um, and looking at some borrowing. So it's it's a tough spot, uh, especially for those. Uh, on uh, the island of Maui. Yeah, we're in a world of hurt, and we've got to get those displaced families into
0: permanent housing. Uh, you know, that's going to help stabilize the economy, get us back on the road to recovery, get more money into the state coffers, the county coffers. Yeah, it's a it's a tough road ahead. It's not going to be easy.
4: Right. No, yeah. we 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 look forward to this or sort of more detailed and clarity on uh, on this plan for housing. That's going to be a big. Um, part of the conversation when it comes to this emergency appropriation bill.
0: All right. Well, thank you for staying on top of it. Thanks so much. We've been talking to HRS Kuve about the latest worries and how much it may cost to deal with Maui's recovery from the deadly wildfires. This is the conversation on statewide, member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, Olehua, Onihao, Okawa, Oa, O Moloka, O Lana, O O Hawaii. Today we're delving through the vinyl records, specifically the folk music section. We're thinking about a trio that got its start in Hawaii and went on to international fame during the 50s and 60s. Uh, Dave Gard and Bob Shane first learned how to play ukulele as Punahou middle schoolers in the school's required music classes. Their interest in string instruments grew to include acoustic guitar and they shared their music by performing at parties and school shows. After high school, they attended college in California. That's where they added a third member to the group and continued their music collaboration, performing in San Francisco nightclubs. Success came in 1958 with the release of their first album and its hit recording of Tom Dooley. It sold over three million copy, uh, copies as a single, a figure that was unheard of at the time for a folk music act. But that was just the beginning. Fourteen of their albums ranked in the Billboard Top 10, and five hit the number one spot. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking for the group's name. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag.
2: When I
5: was a little baby, my mama said, hey son. Travel where you will and grow to be a man And sing what
2: must be sung, poor boy Sing what must be sung
3: And I don't give a damn about a green back of dollar Spend it fast as I can For a willing song and a good guitar
2: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing parents and children experiencing homelessness with opportunities to secure housing, including Family Promise of Hawaii. NareetHawaii.com
6: HPR is hiring for a full-time membership manager. Are you experienced in nonprofit fundraising? A public radio superfan? This is the opportunity for you. Join HPR's growing and passionate team and apply by March 31st. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs.
2: Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com.
0: A new facility just opened its doors this month to help homeless youth on Oahu's leeward side. Raphael House aims to serve young people between the ages of 18 and 24 years old. The group home is a collaboration between two entities, Alternative Structures International, or ASI, and RISE, Residential Youth Services and Empowerment. The Conversation Lillian really Song sat down with RISE Executive Director Carla Hauser.
7: We are struggling with the lack of affordability with housing especially as it pertains to young people who do not yet have the education, the employment pathways that they need to have a living wage. And without that support, without that adult nurturing and guidance, oftentimes our young people are left to fend for themselves, which leads to exorbitantly high numbers of unsheltered young people living on our beaches and in our parks and trying to figure out what their next steps are while they are dealing with all of the challenges that come with being unsheltered. Oftentimes with, you know, adolescents, we have to remember that their brains are still developing. And when they are stuck in a period of unsheltered chaos they're not thinking about their futures. They are simply thinking about how do I survive? What do I need to do in exchange for a place to stay? And oftentimes that exchange is further exploitation. It's further adverse experiences. And so our model really is to create these safe, developmentally appropriate housing models where young people can come off of the streets, they can meet their basic needs, you know take a hot shower, you know get some food, start to establish some relationships with trusted adults. And then you tell us, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? Um, what is your commitment to ending your homelessness and how can we walk alongside you in this journey? you know, this isn't rocket science, and just being able to create a loving, supportive home for young people really testifies to their resilience, that they are able to do what it takes as long as we can provide that safe, nurturing environment for them. Right. And for RISE, you're giving them this
6: hope. You're giving them stability.
7: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Housing is a basic human right, is how we approach this work.
6: Yes. Yeah, And so, Carla, you yourself, through Waikiki Health, were working with homeless youth, runaways with youth outreach. Mm -hmm. But in 2018, you started RISE.
7: Yeah, it was a a collective action of uh, concerned community members who saw all of the amazing work that was happening at our drop-in centers, yet there still was not yet that developmentally appropriate emergency shelter. And we were able to establish the state's first emergency shelter for 18 to 24-year-olds the work that has gone in, the community collaboration, the the public private partnerships that happen really allowed us to create that first space where young people could come and feel safe. Mm. Yeah.
6: You went from that first one, now you have eight properties. That's <laughs> yeah. wonderful from two thousand eighteen yeah. to now. Eight yeah. properties and just very recently you opened up Raphael House.
7: Mm-hmm. Part of our mission, and it's very clear in our mission statement is that we work in a continuum of support that empowers Hawaii's young people to move beyond homelessness. And so it's it's not RISE saying, we have the solution, it's how can we partner with our community. We were noticing that on the Leeward Coast, we're seeing forty-five percent of the unsheltered youth are from that community that are on the beaches there. And yet only eleven percent of them were were making the journey to come you know, from I to Kailua, and so we started talking to community leaders. What is it? What is it that you need here? And one of those partners was ASI, Kaohumana Farms, and the Raphael House has been uh, part of their organization for a very long time. And interestingly enough, Raphael was the patron saint of healing. And so when the leadership at Kahomana Farms approached us with this opportunity, to provide transitional housing for young people. And then with all of the activities that are happening on the farm, with the day programming, it was just a natural fit for us to be able to start to provide some housing inventory to help efforts to move folks from unsheltered into housing in that community. But what's really important for us is that youth from I, youth from the Leeward Coast can stay in their communities, mm-hmm. um, get on their feet, start to heal, and then give back. Yeah. Okay.
6: And logistically, what are the features of Raphael House Mm -hmm. and wraparound services that you guys are sharing with them? Uh,
7: In all of our housing models, it's uh, an opportunity for our young people to experience living independently in a shared environment, which is developmentally appropriate. Um, Most of us, when we took our first steps outside of the family home, was either living in a dorm room or in a roommate situation.
6: That is great training, learning to live with roommates (laughs) and understanding we have boundaries, people. I use the dishes. I got to do the dishes. (laughs) Right, right?
7: exactly. And our model is to make sure that there's full-time adult support there Mm. that can help them with those tenancy skills. We talk about failure a lot, but in a way that it's positive, For us, fail is first attempt in learning. And so when they do make those mistakes, when they're not successful in a job application, it's circling back with the youth and saying, what did we learn? What do you think you might have done differently? Um, And giving that encouraging word of of, let's get back out there. Let's see what else is available for you. And about 50% of the youth that we see have not yet finished their high school diploma. And so that's at the forefront of most of our services is how do we connect you to your educational goals and how do we put you on a pathway to a living wage job? We could give young people all the subsidies in the world, but at the end of the day, those subsidies end. And how does that young person afford to live here in Hawaii? And you can't do that unless you're on a career pathway that makes it truly affordable for you. And then with some of our young people, because they have had such a a long, long history of trauma, adverse childhood experiences, the behavioral health piece that we fold in, whether it's substance abuse training, whether it's getting you connected to a community provider so that you can start to heal from a lot of these traumas, we really try to be a one stop shop, whatever that young person needs to be successful We either have it in house or we have a community partner that can help provide and keep that young person on a pathway to resiliency
6: with what you're doing, how many beds are you providing? How many youth are you servicing?
7: Mm-hmm. Right now, we have about 110 young people in some sort of RISE-sponsored housing. Our goal is to uh, meet the, the functional zero. And for us, that's 300 beds, and that would suffice for every young person in the state of Hawaii that is currently experiencing unsheltered homelessness on any given time. I feel really good that you know we're a third of the way there And we have identified the model that really works for our young people, giving them time to transition in place. And so the great part about what our continuum has created is that there is no wrong door. Community members can refer young people. You can either go through the AUW211 system. At any point, you can send us an email, info at risehawaii.org. You can also call us directly at 808-498-5180. You can connect with any of the adult service providers, and they will make a referral to RISE. But it's really about no wrong door. Um, We also have our young people who make referrals for other youth that they meet who are unsheltered. We have family members who um, are kind of at the end of the rope the young person isn't able to stay safely in their home anymore. They need a cooling off period. So we encourage those families before you ask that young person to leave to please call us. We do have resources. We do work on strengthening the family as a whole. Mm -hmm. And we do understand that sometimes the complexities of what young people are going through. And if the family hasn't been, you know, provided those same resources and trainings that we can work collectively with the family so lots of different ways to get into the organization. Usually to get into the emergency shelter, it's a little bit of a wait. We okay. have 20 beds to meet the needs of hundreds of young people. So, Always full capacity. Always full capacity. Our wait list is anywhere from 30 to 40 young people. One of the positives and one of the ways that we've tried to work around the really long waitlist is um, we have drop-in services seven days a week. So from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., young people can come in. They can still utilize all the case management, behavioral health services, uh, the basic needs, food, shower. And so that helps us alleviate some of the waitlist. Mm. But there needs to be more of those emergency stabilization beds across the island. Mm.
6: Do you have like a story, like an example of one of your youth who has gone through?
7: Yeah, we we have one young lady who, you know, at one point her face was kind of on the side of the milk carton. She was one of Hawaii's most wanted. Um, There was a time when she was unsheltered and sleeping at a church. How old was she? She was uh, 19 years old. Her life was full of challenges. There was a lot of substance use. And... You know, we made multiple efforts and there was one point where, you know, she was running from our outreach team to, you know, the light finally came on for her that that we weren't going anywhere. We were we were that unconditional positive regard, that relentless engagement where we really wanted her to be successful. You guys saw her. Yes, we saw her and we made every attempt to meet her where she was. She's come through the shelter. She's now at our clean and sober house. She's been sober for almost a year. We are working with child welfare so that she can be reunited with her child. And, you know, she wants to eventually wear that green shirt, work at Rise. And those are our success stories when we have our young people pull themselves up out of where they were, and then to come back and say, I, I want to work here, I want to work for this organization. That's some of the proudest moments, I think, for us. Um, we tend to hire a lot of folks with lived experience. They have that grit, they have that understanding of, of you don't give up on people. So, many many successful stories where our young people can come in and really take advantage of what the community has to offer for them they're incredibly resilient they know what they need to do and we're just here to be that conduit and that that shoulder to lean on along the way
6: yes wonderful well was there anything else that you wanted to share with our listeners
7: you know we're we're always looking for businesses that are are interested that are looking for a a workforce flow. We have amazing partnerships with Hawaii Pacific Health, with the Humane Society, with DHL Labs. So if there are other employers out there that would like to work with us as an organization, we have a lot of young people who are very eager to jump into the workforce. And so if you have a good paying career pathway, we're very, very interested to speak to you. Our youth are ready to roll up their sleeves and join the workforce. So, yeah.
6: You have this wonderful network of partnership, and it's just uplifting to know that there are adults, there are partners working alongside you and RISE mm-hmm. and making a difference and allowing them to succeed. So thank you, Carla.
7: No, Thank you for having me. That was
0: RISE Executive Director Carla Hauser talking with HPR's Lillian Song. Uh, about the newly opened uh, Raphael House in Leeward, O'ahu. It adds 10 more beds to house homeless young people. We'll share links and pictures on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org later today. on the daily. Yevgenia Albats, a Russian journalist, talks about the life and legacy of her friend, Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, and explains what it means for his country that he's gone. That's today on the Daily from the New York Times.
3: Beginning this afternoon at 1:30
4: The focus on Jada Pinkett Smith's family life means that so many people don't see her for the artist she is. As an actress, she's explored the shared trauma of the hip hop generation. That emotional expression, really
0: wanting to connect to others who had experienced what I had experienced because we were really invisible. Jada's artistic mind. Next time
4: on It's Been a Minute from NPR.
7: Beginning Saturday at noon.
0: It's time for the answer to today's backyard quiz. Earlier, we told you about the international success of local boys Dave Guard and Bob Shane. The pair were friends during their Punahou days and went on to become folk music stars during the 1950s and 60s. In 1958, they, along with college classmate Nick Reynolds, recorded the breakout hit Tom Dooley. It was followed by a string of hit albums and singles, and to this day they still hold several Billboard magazines all-time records, including most number one albums and most weeks with the number one album. The trio adapted traditional material and mixed plenty of calypso into its repertoire, along with novelty songs and tunes from other countries sung in their original language. Not bad for three guys singing vocal harmonies to simple acu- acoustic guitar and a- upright bass accompaniment. That is the legacy of the Kingston Trio, the answer to today's Backyard Quiz, I'm a big fan, and so is our winner, Rob from Maui. He got it right. He calls himself a vinyl record enthusiast. So that's our quiz today. If you have an idea for one, please write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org.
2: When I was young and dreams were new, I loved a girl who looked like you. I saw her face in Mountain Street.
0: When we think of Black History Month, we tend to think about people and events that occurred on the continent. But did you know that the 30-mile uh, Mauna Loa Trail that stretches from Kilauea to Mauna Loa Summit was built by African American soldiers in 1915. They were known as Buffalo Soldiers, the Army Regiment primarily composed of uh, African Americans, and it was formed in 1866 to serve on the American frontier. Uh, They got the name from Plains Indians who thought their dark curly hair resembled a buffalo's coat and because of their fierce style of fighting. Martha Hoverson is a retired Hawaii librarian who wrote a paper on the Buffalo Soldiers building the Mauna Loa Trail. She talked with HBR's Russell Subiano.
5: The Buffalo Soldiers were a group of combat soldiers. They served in four different military units. There was the 25th Infantry, which was stationed in Hawaii. There was the 24th Infantry, and then there were two units of cavalry ninth, and I I forget the the number for the other one. So there were four units, and these four units were formed after the Civil War. As many people know, a lot of Black Americans fought in the Civil War. And so once the Union army was more or less disbanded, the Black soldiers that had fought for the Union were put into these units. And it's important to emphasize that they were combat soldiers. Mm -hmm. They weren't doing support work. They did do support work, but they were carrying rifles and participating in conflicts. So they had fought in the Spanish-American War in Cuba. They also fought on the frontiers out west and in the Indian Wars. And they had been deployed to the Philippines in what was called the Philippine Insurrection, right at about the turn of the century, the 18. 99, 98, uh, around in there. So this particular group that came to Hawaii had been stationed in Washington State before they came here. And they'd been in two locations. One was Fort Lawton, and I can't remember where the other one was. But they came here in 1913. They came along with a number of other soldiers to come to Schofield Barracks. And it was a big deployment. There were over 2,000 soldiers that arrived on that transport ship, of which about 850 were the 25th infantry. In Hawaii, there was a, a buildup of soldiers prior to World War I. So this was the beginning sort of of that buildup of troops.
8: And you mentioned World War One. I. I think it's important to kind of mention the context of, of the time frame in which they were brought here to Hawaii. So we're looking at 50 years after the end of the Civil War, about 20 years mm. after the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy, and World War I is currently ongoing in Europe, but the U.S. has not entered the war just yet. When the soldiers were here, what was their life like? You said earlier that they were combat soldiers. I also read in your paper that they were very involved in a lot of civilian activities.
5: Yes, they were. And... I don't know whether they were more involved than the white soldiers at Schofield Barracks, but they certainly got a lot of press. Mm-hmm. I think it was a novelty factor. But the other thing was that they were pretty accomplished at the things that they were engaged in. As a general rule, they tended to be a little bit older than white enlisted soldiers, so a little more experienced. And they, they were quite skillful in their military arts. Every single member of the company was considered an expert marksman or better. And then they participated in these parades that that were a feature of Honolulu life in February of every year. And they were always noticed and, and commented on about, about how good they were. And then, and then, of course, they were good at athletics. And right. that was where they made the biggest name. In addition to baseball, and field, and these February celebrations in Honolulu always featured athletic events of track and field. They had good musicians amongst their troops, and their, their band was sought after for playing at events.
8: So where did the idea to build the Mauna Loa Trail come from?
5: So, yeah, that idea about the Mauna Loa Trail came primarily from Thomas Jagger, who was the head of the Hawaiian Volcanoes Observatory. But also a big promoter of that was Lauren Thurston and a number of business interests in Hilo. And Jagger's interest was that he wanted access to the mountain because at that time, Mauna Loa was erupting fairly regularly. And Jagger was making predictions about when the next eruption would be, unlike the geologist today. He was, you know, year and month, that's going to have this mm-hmm. kind of thing. So, they, they were expecting uh, a lot more activity on Mauna Loa, and the only access they had was through a trail at Ainapo down in Kau, which is still there, but it's, it's much steeper and rougher trail. So, they wanted to use this path that went through what is now the park. And mind you, the park hadn't really gotten formed yet in 1915, so... Jagger and and Thurston were also interested in having a park up here. And they were interested in having a military camp. There were all three things going on. So that was why they wanted to have the trail built. And they pulled together a group of people who donated some money and they used the old boy network to contact folks at Schofield, the, the commanders. And, you know, hey, could you send some boys over here to build this trail? and that tended to be how things got done i think in hawaii at the time
8: so what was the experience like building the trail i think i might have read there was some inclement weather it's higher altitude
5: i think that the weather and the altitude were probably their biggest challenges basically what they were doing in the trail building itself was using hammers to beat down the lava so if it was a lava they would they would smooth it a little bit and they would use the rubble that they'd created by knocking the rocks down to line portions of the trail sort of like a cinder path type thing probably the harder surface to work on was the pahoehoe because especially where there are a lot of new eruptions you you get pahoehoe that hasn't been walked on before and is very brittle. And this was a big challenge, especially for taking animals up. If you were riding a horse or had pack horses or mules, the animals would break through that thin, what they called shelly, pahoyhoy, and get all kinds of cuts up their ankles yeah. and legs. So, again, they were using the hammers, the soldiers, to break through those thin layers of pahoyhoy to get to a firmer surface. And it appears that a lot of the distance was Pahoy hoy. So that was the work. You know, it was using these hammers to sort of get the lava into shape and then carrying the, the rubble from the smashing of the lava to spread out on the trail in areas that needed a little coverage, like mm-hmm. some of the offloads. Uh-uh So I think that the altitude and the weather were probably their biggest challenges. And It's not like these guys weren't used to hard work, although they might have been a little older than some of the other companies. They were fairly young.
8: Ultimately, what were the final numbers for the trail? How long was it? How long did it take to build it? Do you have any idea of how much it cost to build it?
5: I don't have any idea of the cost they were doing it with all these donations and there was even an ad in the local paper saying, you know, if we haven't approached you in person for a donation, please be advised that we'd be happy to get money from you. (laughs) And and the first um, round of donations, I think they got $2,000. So I'm assuming that the whole amount donated was probably somewhere between four and 5,000. Now, a lot of the expenses were given to covered gratis, so the, the transportation over on the ships. I can't remember which group it is. I guess it was the committee. They provided the tents, and they actually had little kerosene stoves to keep the tents warm and stuff like that. They built the the way station for them at the 6,000-foot level, which was their main work camp. So all that would have been provided gratis. So I don't know. I don't know how much it costs. But let me, let me just quickly look through this. The trail was 30 miles, and they completed it in 39 days. Did you hear that? Yeah. 30 yeah. miles in 39 days? Now, I want to say something about that that may not have come out real clear sure. in the original article. And that was that they built the trail up to 10,000 feet. Beyond 10,000 feet, they marked the trail. So they would have, you know, probably used ahu, or some kind of marking. And it, of course, was surveyed to the summit. But the actual work done was up to the 10,000-foot level by the time they left. And although it had been thought that the soldiers would be able to build the rest house at 10,000 feet, what we call Red Hill Cabin, Mm -hmm. they didn't. That was
8: instead built by a contractor from Hilo. Is the trail still around today? Is it still in use?
5: Yes, it is one of the main attractions for backcountry visitors. Right now, the upper portion above 10,000 feet is closed because of recent lava flows.
8: What attracted you to this story? Why did you decide to do research on them and write about them?
5: Um, yeah. Well, I'm a volunteer here at the park and my volunteer job is librarian for the park. And I got started on this story because one of the rangers asked me if we had any material on the Buffalo Soldier Trail. And I found out that we didn't have very much, in large part because the park wasn't even in existence at that time. But it was interesting to me, and so I started digging into uh, the old newspapers. And, you know, there's this wonderful resource that the Library of Congress has created where they've digitized virtually all the old newspapers throughout the country. And so I used that service. It's called Chronicling America and found lots and lots of information in the Honolulu papers. And I also found through microfilm at the Hilo Library some of the local papers that weren't included in the database. It's a period of Hawaiian history that I think is very interesting. And so it became my own project.
8: Martha, thank you so much for your time today.
5: You're very welcome.
0: That was National Park Service Volunteer Librarian Martha Hoverson talking with HBR's Russell SubiONO. The Park Service just released a new short film about the soldiers building the Mauna Loa Trail. It's titled Forging a Path with a 12-Pound Hammer. It is free to view on their website. We'll have a link to it on the conversation page of our website later today. We've run out of time. Up tomorrow, we plan to hear from U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who is uh, visiting our harbors and airports this afternoon. He actually jumped on Skyline this morning. We do welcome feedback. Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.